Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the book of 1 Peter. It's toward the very end of your Bible. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Rachel just referenced a moment ago, uh, page 1014 is where you will find uh, today's text. Our culture, uh, by and large, is a culture that is enthralled with the idea of redemption. So think about all the stories that you encounter, whether they be in uh, book format, whether they be in film, uh, TV series, other kinds of medium. Uh, a lot of those stories, in some way, shape, or form, have to do with redemption. One of my personal favorites was initially a novel uh, written by an author named A.J. Quinnell. Uh, that in 2004 was made into a film called Man on Fire. And some of you perhaps have seen that film, Man on Fire. It stars Denzel Washington. Uh, he's a former CIA operative turned bodyguard for a wealthy family in Mexico City. And when we encounter Denzel in that movie, we, we find out he, he's a mess. Like his character in that story is a mess. Uh, he drinks all the time, largely to forget his past and the, and the things that he's been involved with as a secret agent. But after this... this um, this family's daughter is kidnapped. He goes on this violent rampage to, to try to get her back. And in this climactic moment, and I'm going to spoil the movie for you, but it's like 14 years old, so if you haven't seen it by now, I don't feel as, as bad about that. In this climactic moment of the film, he ends up trading his own life for hers. He turns himself in so that she can go free. But what the story also portrays in, that, in the midst of that beautiful, redemptive illustration is that not only is he rescuing this little girl in that final moment, he's also redeeming himself from the terrible things that he's done in his past, from the, the depressed kind of miserable life that he has led uh, up to that point. The reason that, that, that we like stories like this, the reason that they resonate with us, is because we long for redemption in our own lives, and we long to see redemption experienced in the world. We love seeing stories of it unfold in front of us, whether they be in, in the lives of real people or they be on, on screen. But for all of our enthrallment with redemption, we don't really understand it culturally. We don't really understand it. A, a website that ranks popular films uh, says this about redemption. It says, these are the stories that motivate us to hold on to hope to fight to survive, to always believe in the best and recognize that anyone can change. This theme reminds us that life is a series of choices and for every act of injustice, there is justice around the corner. Okay, there's a lot of truth in how that website is describing redemption. But what makes all the difference in the world is what those things are founded on. What's the basis for being able to say things like justice is just around the corner? The myth that, that we prefer as a culture to believe, the myth that we prefer to propagate is that you and I are able to secure our own redemption by the power of the human spirit. That we can, perhaps like Denzel's character in Man on Fire, find redemption in our own lives by paying back our debts, by overcoming enormous odds. But as we think about even that movie as an example, are we not more like the little girl in that story? And before we're ever, as much as we might think ourselves to be agents of redemption, as before we're ever agents of redemption, are we not first enslaved, powerless children in need of our own rescue? Right, for all of our enthrallment with redemption, we just can't, as a culture, seem to admit our powerlessness to obtain it. And so instead, we embark on exhausting pursuits of self-redemption. 
And if you go to a bookstore, if you go to the library, you'll see this. this the self-help books about this, the, the diets, the other forms of self-improvement projects, right? Better bodies, better jobs, better homes, better things. Or uh, maybe a more humanitarian bent on that, projects or pursuits to make the world a better place, advocating for social justice and, and change. Very closely related to these are the pursuits that we might have in, in the church to become better Christians, Right? One more promise um, not to sin in that same way ever again. One more attempt at a Bible reading plan. One more attempt at a, at a plan to pray more often. What, whatever it is, it's, it's always one more heroic effort directed toward God, uh, directed toward others or the world, or even directed to myself to, to prove something to, to myself. So let me ask you to wrestle honestly with, with this question this morning. Are you exhausted are you exhausted? Are you, are you overwhelmed by your inability and by your failure in these pursuits? Do you feel hopeless in that? And might, if that's, if that's you, might that be at least in part because you are trying to purchase something that you cannot buy, that you might be trying to redeem yourself? If that's you, my hope is that today you will see through this myth of self-redemption, and that you will instead come to see and believe more deeply the salvation picture of redemption that is offered to us in Scripture, that is taught in even the words of this text this morning. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. You can follow along with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in, your, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Almighty and gracious Father, the true understanding of your word helps us grow into the fullness of salvation that you so freely offer us in Christ. So grant to all of us this morning that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, and that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So three questions that we will consider this morning from this text in 1 Peter. What is redemption? What are we redeemed from? And what are we redeemed for? What is redemption? What are we redeemed from? And what are we redeemed for? So first, what is redemption? Uh, we've been in this series and we're closing up here just the, the today and then this next Sunday will be our last two weeks uh, looking at different pictures of sin and salvation. Redemption 
is a picture of salvation that uses imagery from commerce or from the marketplace. So to redeem something at its core means to buy something back or to buy something out of its current state. And in the first century when letters like this one, like 1 Peter, were written, the word redemption was often closely associated with the slave market. So slaves were redeemed, they were bought out of their slavery when, a, when some price was paid for their freedom. But the picture of redemption is actually much older than the New Testament, particularly for the Israelite people, for the chosen people of God. Throughout their history, uh, property, animals, people, and even the entire nation of Israel had to be redeemed at different points. So property. Uh, in the book of Ruth, we read about Boaz, Uh, Boaz, in the book of Ruth, fulfills this role of kinsman redeemer. He buys back family property that at one point earlier had to be sold off. And kinsman redeemers like Boaz were also involved in the redemption, so to speak, of people. Uh, Boaz married Ruth in order to provide for her. She was a widow. And also in order to provide an heir for her family after her first husband had died. Animals also had to be redeemed. In books like Leviticus, which are are not very uh, popular to read for most of us, we kind of get bogged down in books like Leviticus. Leviticus lays out this sacrificial system required by God and revealed through the law of Moses. And in this sacrificial system, the firstborn of of all of the animals belong to God and they're to be offered as a sacrifice. But certain animals, animals that were used um, for transportation, animals that were used um, in... um, Uh, for for farming and agricultural purposes like donkeys, they could be redeemed by the owner by paying some other price instead of sacrificing that animal. People were also redeemed in the history of Israel. There are several examples of the redemption of people in the Old Testament. Uh, One of them is that firstborn sons belong to God too. But God wasn't like the other kinds of tribal deities that existed in, in kind of ancient Near Eastern paganism, where in, in many cases, the firstborn sons would be sacrificed to placate some kind of tribal god. God wanted no part of child sacrifice like that. And so even though the firstborn son was what belonged to God, they were to redeem their firstborn sons by sacrificing an animal in their place. Beyond these, the entire nation of Israel had to be redeemed, specifically redeemed from slavery in Egypt. That's the story of of the book of Exodus. And it's really like the salvation event that we read about in the Old Testament. As God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, that liberation, that rescue, really becomes for us this paradigm that points forward to a greater liberation, to a greater redemption that God is going to accomplish. So redemption means that God is going to buy his people back from the power and the penalty of slavery to sin. That's what redemption is. And in all of these examples from the Old Testament, people, property, animals, the nation of Israel, we see how costly redemption is. Redemption always requires uh, that a price be paid. And so when we talk about redemption, we also very, uh, very quickly start to talk about ransom. Ransom. Just like someone pays a ransom to free a hostage from captivity, the Bible speaks of our need to be ransomed from our captivity to sin. But this is really where then the the cultural understanding of redemption and Scripture's teaching on redemption begin to diverge. Culturally, redemption often means like some kind of self-improvement project or or some way to kind of uh, pay back a debt that you might have. 
But in contrast to that, Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8 say this. They say, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So when we come to uh, see something of the, of the greatness of God, of the holiness of God, we come to recognize maybe even a small part of the debt that we owe to God. What our natural kind of default response to that is as human beings is to try to pay it back ourselves. This even works its way into our, our, our vernacular day to day. You know, you do something wrong, you make a mistake, you might say right after that something like, man, I got to redeem this. Or you might say to a friend who's done something like that, man, you really redeemed yourself on that one. You were in a tough spot, you redeemed yourself. But what Peter is saying in this text, and especially in verse 18, is that the best that you and I can offer, the best that we can offer is silver and gold, but even that silver and gold is perishable and it's woefully insufficient. He's saying there, nothing that we have, nothing that we can do will suffice. But what will suffice, even more, what has sufficed already, verse 19, is the precious blood of Christ. Precious blood of Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian or you've been around uh, churches for, for some period of time, it's fairly normal to talk about or sing about or hear about the blood of Jesus. But step back from that for just a moment this morning. Isn't that a little odd? Isn't that a little odd that Christians are so obsessed with blood? If you're, if you're new to Christianity or if you're not a Christian and just exploring these things, this sounds weird, and I think we need to acknowledge that. I think it's more faithful, actually, to, to acknowledge how odd that sounds. In fact, in the early church, uh, many in the Roman Empire mistakenly thought that Christians were cannibals because they spoke about the Lord's table being feasting on the body and the blood of Christ. And the Roman Empire was like, who are these sick people? Christians are obsessed with blood. We are. And it's because it's specifically the blood of Jesus that is our ransom. It's not just Jesus in a general sense, not just even the life of Jesus in a general sense. It's specifically the blood of Jesus that is the price of our redemption. In the New Testament, the, the blood of Christ becomes this shorthand summary way to talk about all of the, the saving aspects of Jesus' death. So Jesus doesn't just die for us as an example of sacrificial love, right? That's definitely something he does when he goes to the cross. That becomes a picture for us of his sacrificial love and his willingness to pour that out for his friends, for those he loves. But more than that, his death and his blood given accomplishes something. It removes our, our guilt before God. It cleanses us from the stain of sin. And it really is then what rescues us, is what pays the ransom to rescue us from slavery to sin. So Christians are obsessed with blood because blood is how God deals with sin. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system existed. The animals were slaughtered, their blood was poured out, and as uncomfortable as it is for many of us to think about what this would actually be like or even feel like, that blood was sprinkled on the altar, it was sprinkled on the tabernacle and other instruments used in worship, it was even sprinkled on the people themselves in order to purify them from sin. In Exodus, in that great salvation event of the Old Testament, uh, which shapes our paradigm for redemption, how are God's people finally liberated from their bondage, from their slavery in Egypt? 
God sends all of these plagues, and it escalates to this tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn son. Now, when that happens, we often miss this in Scripture. When that happens, it's not that the Israelites are like holy people and doing everything right, and the Egyptians are evil and wicked. The Israelites are just as sinful in many ways. But the reason that the Israelites' firstborn sons are spared is because they pour out the blood of a lamb and they paint it on their doorposts and God sees that as a substitute for them and passes over them. So there is power in the blood of a sacrificial lamb. That's the story of the people of God from as far back as we can see. There's power in the blood of a sacrificial lamb. And Peter has all of this in view when he writes these words here in this letter. The blood of Jesus is the fulfillment of what those ceremonial sacrificial laws point toward. Jesus, as he says, is the lamb without blemish or spot. He's the one that makes purification for sin, not over and over again, year after year, as they had to do under that sacrificial system, but paying the ransom for sin and for us once for all. Peter knows this because Jesus himself says that about himself in Mark chapter 10. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, we see Jesus worshipped in heaven, and he's worshipped in heaven with these words. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. So, so here is the, the beauty and wonder of the good news of the gospel, that we, uh, enslaved to sin as we are left to ourselves, we need both a redeemer to buy us back out of that slavery, and we need a ransom. We need the price of that redemption paid. We cannot pay it ourselves. The beauty of the gospel, Jesus Christ is both. Jesus is our redeemer, and Jesus is our ransom. He himself is the the victim. He is that sacrificial lamb, and he is the priest. He's the one that makes uh, a way for us to to be bought back with God and from God, for for God, I should say. That's That's the picture of redemption. So second, let's think about this a little more deeply. What are we redeemed from? What is it that you and I are redeemed from when we talk about redemption? The short answer, as you've heard me say already, the short answer is that we are redeemed from slavery or bondage to sin. But what does that actually mean? Peter says two things that are really helpful here that help flesh out what that actually means. He says that we're freed from ignorance and we're freed from futility. From ignorance and futility. So first in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Part of the slavery of sin is that it often disguises itself as freedom. Sin often looks like freedom. Sin often feels like freedom. And that's as true in our day as it has ever been. Things that feel right, things that look right, become an elaborate disguise that feels or sounds or looks like freedom, but actually is slavery. Right? Christian morality in our day sounds repressive and backward to many, if not most. And Christians are often written off in our culture as, as those who are prudish, as those who are puritanical in the views that they, that they hold. And this is true no matter what vantage point you come at it from. Generally speaking, the left thinks Christians are backward when it comes to topics like sexuality and gender. 
right? Thinking like, surely we've progressed beyond that because it's the 21st century. We've progressed beyond what the Bible says about certain things there. The right, generally speaking, thinks that Christians are backward when it comes to topics like power and money. Like Jesus can't really be serious when he talks about how dangerous it is to pursue power and to pursue money. Even when it looks or feels like freedom, sin is counterfeit freedom. And that is what makes it so incredibly dangerous. One of the most effective ways to keep a person enslaved is to convince them that they're not enslaved. If you can convince someone that they are free when they're actually enslaved, they will remain enslaved forever. And you hear this sometimes in the language of someone that is struggling with an addiction. They might say something like, I can stop anytime I want. But no, they cannot stop anytime they want. That's why in 12-step programs, things like AA, the first step is admitting that you are powerless to change yourself. It's admitting that you are enslaved and that you within yourself are not going to be able to buy your way or work your way out of that. And so ignorance, Peter says, is part of the slavery of sin. It's so crucial for us to become aware of our slavery so that we can then see our need for freedom and then we can look to the ransom of Jesus to accomplish that for us. And for some of us here this morning, uh, that's not all that hard to do. Like, for example, if you have ever been addicted to something, if you are a recovering addict or you're addicted to something right now, be it uh, alcohol or drugs or pornography or gambling or whatever it might be within that, then it's not that hard for you probably to appreciate the salvation picture of redemption. You might know deep down you really are enslaved to something and you need freedom from it. But other forms of slavery are a lot more subtle than that. Like, like measuring your life and finding your worth in your accomplishments. Or measuring your life by your bank account or approval from other people. All right, these things look nice and shiny on the outside. And, and, and our life might appear to be going so well, it doesn't look or feel like slavery at all. But that's counterfeit freedom. It's really just slavery that wears a pretty mask. See, under the surface... That supposed freedom is actually based on your hard work and your abilities and your performance. And here is the reality that we all have to face at one point or other in our lives. No one knows how to let you down like you do. No one knows how to let you down like you do. And so when you inevitably drop the ball somewhere, if your life is built on that, all of a sudden your life gets uh, exposed to be the, the elaborate cage that it is, even though it's never felt like that. The Truman Show is a, is a film about a man who is always on camera, though he doesn't know it. Uh, what he thinks is real life is actually just a really elaborate uh, studio. And everybody that he knows, including his wife and his best friend, are just actors playing a part. Okay? Many people live their lives like Truman. And they go about their daily lives thinking that they are free, failing to recognize this elaborate cage that exists around them. Redemption sets us free from that ignorance, and it puts a spotlight on the fact that we are actually enslaved. Part of what it means to be enslaved is to be ignorant to it altogether. Redemption means our eyes are now open to the cage that we are in left to ourselves. And down in verse 18, Peter says this. He says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So the slavery of sin is not only ignorance, it's also this futility that Peter talks about here. Every culture inherits from its ancestors 
futile and detrimental ways of thinking and believing and acting. And for you and me, a huge piece of that futility is overconfidence in human ability. Overconfidence in human ability. The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment produced a lot of great things for our civilization. One of the most detrimental effects of the Enlightenment is overconfidence in humanity. Where, where ignorance would mean that we're not even aware of our slavery to sin. Overconfidence says that whatever hole we might dig ourselves into, give us enough time with enough effort, with enough elbow grease, and we'll be able to dig ourselves out. That's why, passed down from generation to generation, redemption for so many in our culture means self-redemption, means I can redeem myself. But Jesus' redemption sets us free from this futility. It shatters this myth. It shatters the vanity. It shatters the futility inherited from our forefathers that thinks that we can accomplish our own redemption. And it brings us back instead to that ancient wisdom of the psalmist. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So for us as Christians, to look upon the cross, to look upon this table and this bread and this wine. That is God pleading with you to stop trusting yourself and pleading with you to stop trusting your abilities and instead to trust the only source that is truly powerful enough and not futile, powerful enough to accomplish your, your redemption. If that's what we're redeemed from, then lastly, let's talk about what we are redeemed for. What are we redeemed for? Because it's not just out of something, it's into something even better. And Peter's answers in this text, twofold. We are redeemed for holiness and we're redeemed for hope. Holiness and hope. Uh, as Christians, I think we're also prone to distort uh, redemption. It's not just a cultural problem, it's a problem within the church and among Christians as well. And one way that often happens is that we make holiness into a basis for redemption rather than a result of redemption. We turn holiness into a basis for redemption rather than a result of redemption. And if you answered and wrestled with that question this morning when I asked it early and you said, yeah, I am exhausted this morning. If you would say, I, I am like tired of trying and falling short, then perhaps this is why. Perhaps you're trying to be holy in order to make yourself worthy of God's redemption. Maybe you even know that's not the way that it works in God's kingdom. Maybe, maybe you've heard this before and this isn't new for you. It's still incredibly easy to slip back into that way of thinking and behaving, trying to make ourselves presentable and clean ourselves up so that we're worthy of, of redemption. But as Peter calls Christians to be holy in all of their conduct, as he says, be holy as God himself is holy, the entire pursuit of that is founded on what? On the fact, he says in verse 19, that your redemption has already been accomplished, that you have already been ransomed from slavery to sin by the precious blood of Christ. So holiness is a result of redemption, and it's a response to redemption. In verse 13, the phrase, preparing your minds for action. Another way that we could translate that phrase is to gird up the loins of your mind. That would be the old school language way to say, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. That imagery recalls the Passover in Exodus. God told his people when he was about to accomplish that, that he's going to bring deliverance, and that when he brought deliverance, they have to be ready 
They've got to have their staff in their hand. They've got to have their clothes bound up in their other hand so that they can run out of slavery in Egypt, be in a hurry to escape the bondage of their slavery. And so likewise for us, because Christ has purchased our deliverance from slavery to sin, we are in a hurry to be holy. The critical distinction here is that holiness is not another exhausting project of self-redemption. It's like the Hebrews in Egypt. You watch for the redemption of God and then perceiving it being fulfilled in the, in the ransom of the blood of Christ. You respond to that with everything you are and you run into holiness. Something that really fascinated me when I first learned this. In the book of Exodus, the same word that is used to describe the Israelites' slavery in Egypt is later used to describe their worship of God after they are free. The same word for slavery is later used to talk about their worship. And what we learn from that is part of what it means to be human, part of how we are shaped as we are created, is that we are going to bind ourselves. We are going to be bound to someone or to something. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 6. He says, now that we're free from slavery to sin, become bondservants of God. Don't present your parts uh, as slaves to sin. Present them as servants to God. A few decades back, Bob Dylan wrote a song, you gotta serve somebody. Gotta serve somebody. So think about it this way. If sin is slavery, then true freedom is not autonomy. It's not, it's not having no boundaries or limits. If sin is slavery, true freedom is holiness. And that might sound simple, but what I would call you to pay attention to in your own life and in our culture. So many voices around you, so many voices you encounter in our day will attempt to turn that around in your mind. Human nature, apart from the redemption of God, makes sin sound like freedom and makes holiness sound like slavery. And so we have to keep these things clear in our minds so that we can call out the lies when we see them. If sin is slavery, then true freedom is holiness. And so in those times in your life when sin is still appealing, because God help us, it will be appealing, remember that your real freedom, your holiness, has been bought with great price. Remember that sin is not inevitable and that you need not return to your slavery. An author named Tim Chester says it this way. He says, Imagine a slave with a cruel master, and one day a new man takes pity on him. He redeems him from his old cruel master at a high price. A week later the old master sees his former slave. He barks out commands as usual, and the slave's every instinct is to obey. But he's no longer under the control of the old master. He no longer needs to obey. He no longer should obey. He needs to remember to whom he now belongs. He needs to remember that day of liberation when his old life passed away and his new life began. This is, for me, uh, for our church, one of the reasons why coming to the Lord's table is so meaningful. Because when we come to this table, not only are we remembering the day of our liberation when our new life came and our old life passed away, 
We are also experiencing this grace. We're experiencing this redemption in a unique way. We're actually being shaped by God's redemptive work, by this practice of broken bread and wine representing the blood of Christ poured out for us. We're remembering and we're believing and we're participating in the grace that is ours, that we are no longer enslaved to sin, but we are now worshipers bonded to God through the ransom of the precious blood of Christ. And we take communion uh, every single Sunday here at Liberty. I would take it every single day if I had the opportunity. Because there is not a day that goes by in my life when I am not tempted in some way to obey this old slave master who acts like he still owns me. There is likewise not a day where I don't need the redemption of God and my freedom from slavery to sin reenacted in my heart and in my soul. The last thing that I'll mention, we are redeemed for holiness and we are redeemed for hope. And maybe you heard that as we read this passage this morning. It really bookends the verses that I read today. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 21, all of this so that your faith and your hope are in God. So if slavery is ignorance, and if slavery is futility, then redemption means hope. And it means you and I can walk through this life with confident expectation that our freedom is secure, that it really has been purchased, and that we need not return to our former futile ways or ignorant ways of thinking, believing, and acting. I want to close this morning sharing with you Uh, the lyrics of a newer hymn that was written just three years ago um, called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I just came across the song actually this week, and I think it captures this idea better than I could. Um, So I'm going to put the words on the screen here behind me. Uh, You can follow along with me. Come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the king, he the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. I want you as we keep going, pay attention for that theme of redemption and ransom and what that builds to at the end. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. He's that perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. He fulfilled that ceremonial sacrificial law, so we don't have to keep sacrificing animals every year. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ, the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. And the last verse, come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected, as we will be when he comes. It's a song all about 
the redemption purchased by Jesus. It's all about the price of that redemption, the ransom of Christ. And as we walk into Holy Week this week and we build toward Friday, where we look to this cross and see what he's purchased for us, and then we look on Sunday to Easter and he's accomplished our vindication and our, and our justification through his resurrection, let these words just ring in your ears this week. In a hymn all about redemption and ransom, it culminates with what? It culminates with hope. That Jesus' death and resurrection is what the songwriter says, a foretaste of deliverance, that we will one day be, get to experience in full the freedom that has been purchased for us so that we might now in the present be people of unwavering hope. We are redeemed for holiness. We are redeemed for hope. And so, friends, this salvation picture of redemption means that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are free. It means that you are free. So may your ransomed and your redeemed life bring forth the kind of holiness and hope that exalt the worth of the one who has purchased that freedom for you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We sang those words earlier, Jesus, and I confess too lightly in my heart, we'll never know how much it cost. We'll never know how much it cost. We, we want to know something as much as we can know so that we might really perceive how valuable your ransom of us is, Jesus. And thank you for how you have at least opened the door for us to know something that is genuine and true of that. I pray we would be captivated by the pursuit of knowing that even more. And that we would only grow in our appreciation of the worth, Jesus, of what you've accomplished. Thank you for your perfect sinless life. Thank you for your redemption of we who were enslaved to sin. And would you stir up in our hearts, would you stir up affections this week for Jesus that maybe have been dormant and dead for a long time? And among those men and women in this room who are exhausted because they have bought the myth of self-redemption and projects of self-redemption, may they truly be set free to know the redemption that has been purchased by by your blood on the cross. And strengthen us now as we get to come to this table and look upon your blood and your body given for us, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.